0: What's happening? Welcome to Wong Nodes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. Today on the show, we have an incredible, incredible bass player, musician, writer, artistic director, Christian McBride. Now, I first got hip to Christian McBride when I saw him live with the Pat Metheny Trio. It was Pat Metheny, Antonio Sanchez on drums, and Christian McBride on the bass, and it was incredible. There's only a handful of bass players that I know that really pull off both the upright thing and the electric bass thing. Christian McBride is one of those cats. He's played with everybody from Freddie Hubbard, Chick Corea, Pat Metheny, James Brown. He's got this band that I used to listen to all the time called the Philadelphia Experiment, kind of blending jazz with R&B, hip hop. Pat Martino was on some of the stuff. Questlove was the drummer. It's crazy hearing him in this interview, I'm not going to spoil it, him talk about his high school class and just the amount of incredible, insane musicians that he grew up with. So check it out. This is Christian McBride. You guys hit the distro kid yet? It is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, pretty much anywhere else that people consume music. You can get an account starting at $19.99 per year. Per year, you get unlimited uploads and you keep 100% of your earnings. 100%. So for somebody like me, I put out, <laughs> I put out a lot of albums last year. It was still just one annual price, no matter how many albums I have up, and I keep 100% of the earnings that come in. There's a lot of reasons I love DistroKid, but the ones I want to highlight here are the Teams feature. So basically, I can assign a percentage of royalties to go to any of my collaborators, however we work it out, or my managers work with their managers, and we work out you know whatever percentage split my percentage goes to me, and then DistroKid gives the other percentage to the other collaborator or artist. It works amazing, and neither one of us as artists needs to handle the accounting. DistroKid just does it for us. Set. If you'd like to give him a try, use my VIP link to get 30% off your first year of DistroKid membership. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong. There it is. Let's get to the episode. Well, Christian, thanks so much for joining us. It's a treat to have you on. I have so many questions for you because you seem to be somebody who has so much experience and wisdom that we can learn from.
1: I'm glad that you think so. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pleasure to speak with you as well. I've been been looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, and I know that we were probably going to see each other in 2020 because I was planned to play. I was scheduled to play at the Newport Jazz Festival, which unfortunately I wasn't able to do. And for those who are yeah. listening that don't know, Christian is the artistic director for the Newport Jazz Festival. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means and kind of what your vision is for that?
1: Sure. Well, the Newport Jazz Festival was started by uh, George Ween in 1954. And he's been the only artistic director for the uh, entire, entirety of the festival until 2016. At the end of 2015... Uh, he called me over to his apartment, and he said, "I really like to speak with you about something." I had I played the festival that year in 2015, and um, you know, I I've been friends with George Ween for for a long time, but I never thought of myself as being sort of in his closest inner circle. You know, I was see him at the festival. Or I would see him around New York at a gig. We'd say hello and exchange hugs, and that would be about it. So I had no idea that I was anywhere on his radar. And uh, anyhow, he he called me over to his apartment in the fall of 2015. He said, hey, I've been keeping an eye on all of the things that you've been doing. And uh, we had a a recent board meeting. He starts telling me about the entire history of the festival, most of which I already knew. But he also said, you know, uh, a few years ago, we went nonprofit, and we have a really great board. And, you know, we, we have the Newport Festivals Foundation. And I'm sitting there thinking, why is he telling me all of this? You know, and uh he says, I realize now that at age 89, we don't have a successor plan. Mm. And uh that's probably not too smart. And then I thought, oh, he's gonna ask me for recommendations. Okay. <laughs> and so now I'm starting trying to think of some names in my head. And he said, um, after uh having a, a very good discussion with the board, we thought you'd be the perfect guy to take over. Wow. And I mean, you might as well have told me I just won $10 million. You know, it, it the the shock of it all was uh, it, it was something. What he said specifically was, uh, it seems from your career, you're open to all avenues. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't see you, you know you, you don't have a you don't have a gripe or a grudge with any particular style of jazz. Yeah, I said, well, that's true. And he said, that's kind of what my model is for the festival. I want all types of music. You know, I want all types of jazz at my festival. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you seem to be the kind you've proven with, with your history as a player. And, uh, he, you know, he knew of my artistic directorship out in LA when I, I did that from, uh, 2006 to 2010. I, I was, uh, a creative chair for jazz programming with the LA Philharmonic. Mm. And in 2012, I became, uh, artistic advisor for jazz programming at, uh, New Jersey Performing Arts Center, NJPAC. So uh, he'd seen all that. So he says I I want I want that I want that mindset at my festival. Yeah. And so I, you know basically my my job is to really sort of brainstorm what happens at the festival not just bringing certain groups to the festival but also putting together some special packages. Yeah. That's always fun. Yeah.
0: That's cool. Yeah. You touched on something that I I want to dive into And that is basically the different types of jazz and kind of where jazz is now, because obviously there's a lot of history in the genre, and it's a very broad genre at this point. And there's different, the the tree has grown many branches, and it's going in several different directions. I'm curious what you think jazz looks like today and what you think it will look like 10 years from now.
1: Well, I'll answer the last question first. Um, I think the beauty of, of living life is no one has ever accurately predicted where it's going. Yeah. Something always comes out of nowhere that you're not prepared for. Some musician that you didn't expect always cracks the glass ceiling, meaning that they get larger than the genre and they start to cross over. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's a word most jazz people still don't like, cross over. <laughs> um, But you think of people like Kamasi Washington and uh, Esperanza Spalding and Diana Krall, then you back it up to people like Joshua Redman and Wynton Marcellus, Branford Marcellus. Uh, Not only did they become huge stars in the jazz world, but they actually crossed over into pop culture and became very popular. So I don't think anyone could have seen any of those people becoming as big as they were if you had asked five years before, you know, and so. I don't know where it's going, but it'll be fun to see what the next thing is that, that becomes popular. Uh, where is the music right now? Well, I I always try not to buy into certain narratives because there's a narrative in the jazz world that, uh, Oh, the music is dying. This music has died so much in the last 70 years. It's annoying. You know, <laughs> you find old downbeat magazines from the sixties. Like, is jazz dying? You know, <laughs> it's like, gosh, I mean, how many times have we been resurrected? You know, yeah. so no, jazz is not dying and never has died and never will die mm-hmm. because, uh, if jazz dies, that means creativity dies and, and creativity is probably more, um, I feel like m- more people, more of us have to be creative now than than ever, you know. So uh, I, think you, I think once the pandemic is over and you see musicians start to be able to tour again, you're going to hear that there's going to be a boom of some incredible creative music. Now, of course, the big challenge, and this is much bigger than jazz, is uh, where are we going to play when the pandemic is over? Because there's been a lot of venues that haven't made it. And uh, the ones that are hanging on, they're hanging on by a thread. So the the bigger goal is to help to uh, save these venues.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's interesting, the way that you talk about jazz and the way you're doing it, you're not describing a genre, you're kind of describing just a creative outlet and an expression yes. of creativity. So is that just maybe where sometimes people get it wrong is how they define jazz? The whole
1: idea of genre—that was—I don't think that was ever created by an artist. That was created by business people that have to sell the music. Yeah, you know, sure. And and, and I realized that in some cases categories possibly help, mm-hmm. c- categories possibly hurt. You know, but in terms of the artists themselves, I mean, I was very very fortunate to have someone in my family, my my great uncle, my uncle Howard. He's a bass player as well. His personal preference. As avant-garde jazz, he's he's always loved Ornette Coleman, Cecil Taylor, late Coltrane, like post the the post classic quartet, Coltrane, Albert Eiler, the outer the better for him. Yeah. Sun Ra, you know, he 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 loves that stuff. And so when he started to turn me on the jazz, he would play that stuff. But he would also play Art Blakey. He would also play Cannibal Adderley. He would also play Hard Silver. He would also play Weather Report. Mm-hmm. He would play the Mahavishnu Orchestra. He would play Louis Armstrong. He would play Billy Eckstein. He played Mary Lou Williams. And at no point did he ever say, This is better than that. Yeah. Or sure. you should listen to this more than you listen to that. He just played everything for me and he let me gravitate toward what I gravitated toward. He was, But he was also very, um, he gave me the information like, you know, he would say, okay, Billy Eckstein had the greatest, most groundbreaking uh, bebop big band in the late 1940s. People like Gene Ammons and Art Blakey played in that band, uh, Dexter Gordon, Tad Dameron. So he would give me the facts, yep. but he wouldn't say like Sunrise Band isn't that good. Hmm. You know, he would just feed me this information and let me, you know, and he would give me the information and the facts. yeah. And then I would draw my own conclusion, you know? Yeah but i did realize that there was a certain what we know as jazz has a certain distinct feel it has a personality and that personality is the swing groove that's sort of the root of of what jazz is the swing rhythm you know because other styles of music these so-called genres they have something that supposedly defines that style of music as well you know here's where genre can get confusing People claim, you know, it's like, well, they like hip hop, you know, and there's like all these different sub genres of hip hop, you know. I like bluegrass, which is not the same as country music. Yeah. You know, I like pop. I like this. I, I, I like Latin music. I like the people have, have all these different genres they like. If there's something that they don't know what to call it, it always gets thrown under the jazz umbrella. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, like, Anytime there's some weird style of music, no one really knows what to call it. It all gets shoved in, into the jazz genre. So, therefore, most of the general public, I don't think they really know what the core of jazz is because everything that's unrecognizable gets thrown into that thrown under that umbrella. That that could be that that could make the layperson like, oh, I, I ain't messing with that jazz. It's too confusing. Yeah, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I guess sometimes it it is an intimidating genre not just for a listener, but as a player as well, to come in. Because sometimes, you know, there's a history of of the jam sessions, everybody trying to cut each other's heads. Right. Every, you know, there's a... And, and inherently, because there's changes and there's stuff that you need to follow that's a little different than just a one-chord jam, there is something, and I say just a one-chord jam in quotes, not that that's always easy, because that's focused on a different thing, the feel, the groove. Right. Some people who can play right. play over changes can't play well over a one chord jam. Or or swing. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So I think sometimes the lay person and even a musician trying to get into it, there is a certain level, a minimum requirement of understanding. That's right. That's right. So sometimes that can be intimidating, but it's really fun to see how people are blending different genres with jazz. And for me, it's exciting because I grew up listening to that. I didn't grow up listening to just straight up traditional jazz. My dad showed me the ECM catalog, the CTI catalog, the weather reports, like, and kind of showing me in a similar way, you're talking about uh, your uncle, here's what ECM jazz is like. And here's this kind of scene and the CTI scene, blue notes and all all these different things to be able to, like you're saying, form my own opinion. But then growing up in the time that I did, the fir- My first exposure to you as a musician was the Philadelphia Experiment, mm-hmm. which is a really fun project. Which, for anybody who doesn't know, I believe it was a you, Questlove, Pat Martino, Yuri Kane. Uri Kane. Yep. yep. And that was a huge blending of, of different genres that, that explored new space for me as a listener.
1: Well that 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 was a, a really fun record to make. It, it really is hard to believe that we recorded that 21 years ago. That's really to wow. me cuz it feels like yesterday in 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 a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes when somebody puts together sort of the these these sort of genre bending recordings uh or sort of these uh like literally a fusion recording. I don't mean like a fusion recording in the, in the genre sense, yeah, yeah. but like literally a fusing yeah. of different styles. Somehow, the swing grooves, the the traditional jazz rhythms, always get lost. But that didn't happen on the Philadelphia Experiment. That it was. It. I, I like the fact that um, we got extremely funky on some tracks. We were swinging on some tracks. We get like. Uh, you know some avant-garde on a couple of tracks you know like it really was a uh, a meld of of a bunch of different things the post-production on that record was uh i thought it was masterful uh aaron levinson and and uh andy Hurwitz put that together because we just got in the studio and jammed and so you know it was aaron that did all the editing and you know so we were just as surprised as all you guys were when you heard
0: it <laughs> that's awesome yeah i mean even just in the way that you chose different tones the envelope filter base electric right. bass on grover the upright on ain't it the truth and some of those things you know it it shows your depth and knowledge on all of you guys involved in the project in different genres and oh let's let's try this thing let's go with this and I, you can tell there was some yeah. some like the album suggests experimentation involved. That's really fun for for a listener. Well,
1: on the on the title track, it's a story I'm not <clears throat> sorry. is a story I'm not proud of, but it is what it is. So <laughs> Uri brought in the, the the title track, the fell off experiment, and it had actual notes. There was an actual bass part written on it, and so I remember it being somewhat challenging. So when we read it down, I'm reading the music and. I think I'm screwing it up. And and I know I'm screwing it up because they were like a, they were like a, there was certain like a four bar passage where it had like some real jagged rhythms. So I'm going at Ori, is, is this right? You know, I'm playing it. And Ori's like, no, but I like what you're playing. I was like, no, 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 but I, I want to learn what it's, what it's supposed to be. Let me say like, one, two, um, you know, whatever it was. And Ori's like, no, 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 play, play what you've been playing. And I'm like, no, but I wanna learn what you wrote. I don't wanna screw it up. And so um, what you hear on the recording is me massively destroying what Uri actually had written on the paper, like like in a bad way. But Uri really liked it. He was like, no, 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 I, I'm, we, we're keeping that. And I'm like, oh God. So uh, one of these days, I, I haven't seen the, the, the sheet music since. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so one of these days, I want to ask him for that so I can play it the right way. <laughs> Have you guys ever played live? We've played, I think, five gigs total, maybe more, but not not, not many. We, um, When the record came out in 2001, we played two back-to-back shows. We played uh, at the Bowery Ballroom in New York, and we played uh, TLA in Philly. And then we didn't play together again until we did the – 07 Bonnaroo festival. We did Monterey in 2014, and we did Newport in 2016, uh, 2017. Cool. And that's it. Just those, those, so those, those five gigs.
0: Well, I guess one of the advantages of being the artistic director is you get to hire yourself to play.
1: <laughs> but see, you know what? I, I'm I'm making a point to do the opposite because I don't want anybody talking about oh, oh this no, just, just booking himself, you know. Doesn't he, even have, doesn't he have enough gigs already? Leave, let somebody else go. So I'm like, ah, <laughs> Double dipping. I'm out of, I'm out of that one.
0: <laughs> well, when I get back there, you, you'll have to come sit in with us. It'd be fun to play. I would be honored. Are you kidding? Come on, man. That'd be fun. That'd be I fun. won't screw up your bass part. <laughs> well, the, the album, Philadelphia Experiment, You Are a Philly Cat. That album's a bunch of Philly, Philly musicians. I have a question about geographical location. And yes. language, feel, all those things. Because I come from Minneapolis, and I there's a Minneapolis feel. There's a Philadelphia feel. There's a Philadelphia language. Even just the fact that you – I mean, you have an – I don't know if it's an album or a band called New John. Both. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So all my friends from Philly are like, oh, man, I love this John. I'm like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa what? It's like, <laughs> yeah, right. oh, no. It's like, it's like John. It's like joint. But it's like this, exactly. this new joint. It's like it suggests a thing. But it's also, it's an adjective, it's a verb, it's a noun. Uh, You know, there's just like some Philly lingo, like many areas of the world have. They have different, whatever. But that suggests also clearly, and any musician can hear it, that there is inherent language and insider time feel, all these things that relate to geographical location. Can you speak Mm -hmm. to what that is for Philly? How do you describe the Philly thing in music?
1: That's a very good question. I, I wonder if the, um, I always wonder about sort of uh, geographical, m- geographical musical identification, because I think since the internet, the world has gotten a lot smaller and it's easier for us to see what other people are doing in other regions instantly, you know? So like there were a lot of years where you just had to wait to see what was coming out of Minneapolis. You sure. know, you know, you couldn't get on YouTube and check in to see what happened at a session last night in Philly or Los <laughs> Angeles, <laughs> yeah. you know? So I think that um, the world has gotten a little smaller and sometimes I wonder if that sort of, uh, those local sounds still exist, but they, they obviously still do. I mean, somewhere like New Orleans, Philly is one of those places. You know, uh, I, I think there certainly is a, a, a sound in most cities. In in terms of Philly, oh man, what could I what could I say? It is. I I, I think it depends on which generation of Philly musicians you're talking to, because I think since the 197 since Gamble and Huff, any musician that comes from Philly, I don't care if they're avant garde artist, an RB artist, a gospel artist, or a jazz artist, there's some Gamble and Huff in them because It literally dominated the city um, in the 1970s and the early 1980s. Most trained musicians, like the best musicians in Philly, probably played in MFSB at one point. In fact, my first professional experience, like the first real band I was in, it was a saxophone player in Philly. He's still there. His name is Joe Sutler. And Joe had a big band called The Swing Machine. And some of the guys in that band had played in MFSB. So here I am 16 years old playing these gigs with this big band and like that's the lead alto player that played on me and Mrs. Jones sitting in, in front of me. The trombone player that played on Love Train is sitting next to me, you know? So it was a really freaky experience for me at age 16. But what is that sound? You know, it's the sound of, it's the sound of disco, it's the sound of soul, it's the sound of Coltrane. It's the sound of uh, of Lee Morgan. It's a lot. Wh- whatever it is in the Philly sound, it's a lot. <laughs> um, just because Philly has been, it really has set trends in a lot of different styles of music. And most people in Philly have had to get a taste of all of those different styles. So there's some really amazingly trained and and learned musicians in Philly. Yeah, you know I went to high school with uh, Joey D. Francesco, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Questlove, Black uh, Boys to Men. Yeah. You went to uh, I went wait.
0: To I interrupted. You. I said what before you were even done. You slipped Boys I'm, to Men in there at the yeah. end. <laughs>
1: I'm surprised. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't know that. Yeah, we went to the Creative and Performing Arts High School, class of '89. Those those are only the ones that got famous. And wow. I tell I tell people all the time if anybody in Boys to Men wanted to be a jazz singer, they could do it. Oh, they're incredible! You know, incredible. If Questlove. If, if if Amir decided he wanted to give up the roots, of, which of course he'll never do, <laughs> but if he decided he wanted to be a jazz drummer, he would be killing. Yeah. Uh, Joey Di Francesco, we all know he's a he's a freak of nature. He can just play anything. I mean. Forget the Oregon. He 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 nailed that down. His trumpet is just as good as that. Ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, trumpet now, <laughs> and now he's trying to play the saxophone, which is annoying cuz he's good <laughs> at it, you know. Kurt Rosenwinkel has just become like, you know, one of the seminal figures in modern guitar playing. Yeah. So, uh that's the kind of that's the level of musicianship that I came up around.
0: Dang it. That is incredible.
1: And and Black Thought, uh Tariq Tariq Trotter, he was a visual
0: art major in high school. So, Wow. He's one of the world's greatest artists. Wow. That's incredible. See, for me, I when I think of the Philly sound now and in my scene as a rhythm player, a lot of how I'm thinking about geographical sound is in the time feel. And like right. kind of the the stereotypical Minneapolis time feel is right in time a little bit pushing, like there's a little urgency. Right. Philly, it almost feels like to me my interpretation is that it's the opposite that it's more laid back. And I think a lot of that has to do with with things, some of the albums that Questlove has either produced or been involved in a lot of the other... I, I guess I'm speaking outside of the jazz thing. Well, again, yeah. uh, jazz, whatever jazz is, but...
1: Well, I mean, surely, you know, Questlove helped to sort of reestablish not not just a Philly sound, but, like, an entire genre. Totally. You know, like, like that whole thing, like, he and, and him and, and Dilla... And, and like what, what Amir did with the Soul Aquarians, with, with D'Angelo and what, and what all those cats, it sort of redefined the whole genre, you know? So um, whatever that is, yeah, that that's Philly too.
0: Yeah. You know? See, because you're speaking of all this other stuff, yet I'm thinking of Philly, a whole different subset where, I mean, we right. could talk about, like, even just guitar-wise, you have Kurt Rosenwinkel, Pat Martino, Jimmy Bruno... Right. You know, all these, and that's just the jazz part of it. Yes. And then you have all these other sides, which, of course, there's a lot of crossover. I love that you know Jimmy Bruno. Oh, Jimmy's incredible. That's my man. Yeah, Jimmy's great. Mm. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about Distro Kid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. Well, you've mentioned a lot of legends even just growing up. So you've you've had experience playing with tons of incredible players clearly from the time you're in high school and that was just like you said, just the ones that became famous or whatever. Right. You know, there's probably an equal amount of incredible musicians that people wouldn't not the, the general public wouldn't recognize their name. Right. Now, when I look at some of your credits list, it blows my mind at some of the legends, Freddie Hubbard, Chick Corea, rest in peace, Pat Metheny, mm-hmm. James Brown, <laughs> this insane list of, of pretty much anybody's bucket list of musicians they'd want to play with. When you're playing with musicians like that, is there something that—and and I'm going to consider you a legend as well. You are, you're just on the other side of this call with me, so I don't want to flatter you too much. Um, <laughs> So people are going to be saying the same thing about you. In this realm, is there something that many of these legends are focusing on, paying attention to, both musically and artistically, as far as just expression? Is there something they're paying attention to that the average musician isn't?
1: Uh, it, it depends. It, it depends on the artist. Um, you know, everyone you just named had such extremely different methods of leading bands and, and, and to creativity. But I think there's one thing that they all have that you just cannot get to unless you've logged the miles. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain amount of wisdom that they have that you just, you just got to wait to get that. You you have to, you have to do a lot of listening, a lot of trial and error until you actually get to that place where you know yourself, you know what I mean? And and you're confident in what you can do and what you can get out of other people. Sometimes I feel like, uh, yeah, I, I think like Miles Davis, there's a great, mile, I mean, almost every Miles Davis quote is a great quote, yeah. but <laughs> he was saying how um, great greatness really has nothing to do with age. And I believe that, but I do believe wisdom is is, is very much directly age related, but I think being great, particularly being great at your instrument, having great ideas, writing great tunes, writing great arrangements. You can be great at any age. I mean, Charlie Parker was great in his twenties. Clifford Brown was great in his twenties. Miles was great in his twenties, you know, Roy Hargrove was great in his 20s. Joshua Redman was great in his 20s. So when that that whole thing came down on us in the 90s, where like, you know, all these young jazz musicians are getting all these record contracts, you know, they ain't that good. No, they were that good. Sorry. (laughs) You know? Yeah. But there's a certain wisdom that you can't get until you've actually lived, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh knowing when to pick your spots, you know. And uh I think of somebody like Chick Corea who we just lost suddenly a a few days ago. This cat, well, you know, Chick was was interesting because I got to see Chick in a lot of different situations. I saw how he was when he was playing with his peers, and I I got to see him play in bands where, you know, he was sort of bringing up the younger guys. Two vastly different Chick careers. Like when when I went on the road with him for the first time, it was a band called Recording, uh, I'm sorry, Remembering Bud Powell. And um, Wallace Roney played trumpet. Uh, Joshua Redman and Kenny Garrett alternated on saxophones. Myself and Roy Haynes. Now, when you got Roy Haynes playing drums on the gig, what are you going to tell him? Nothing. You don't need. You, you don't say anything to Roy Haynes. You know, I feel like anytime Roy Haynes is on the gig, it's his gig. Yeah. Even if even if he's a side man, you know. And so on that tour, Chick was like, I couldn't believe just how open and cool he was. I mean, it was like it was like playing with. It was like playing with one of my peers. You know, it was like playing with like Brad Meldow or Benny Green or somebody like that. Like, man, you know, he brought in all this big stacks of all these new arrangements. But if Roy if some if anybody in the band didn't quite nail it, Chick would do he would do like Uri Kane did on the Philadelphia experiment. He's like, No, that's not right, but I like what you played. Keep that in. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And then I remember he needed a bass player. He had this band called Vigil. And um They had a European tour and something had happened with the bass player in that band. And Chick called me at the last minute. He said, Chris, I I need you to, if if you're available, can you please do this European tour? So I find a a steady bass player. I said, I'd be honored to come out and and play with you anytime, Chick. So I went on the road with that band and in that band were some younger guys. Marcus Gilmore played drums, who's also Roy Haynes' grandson. Charles Altura played guitar. Guy named Tim Garland, great, great saxophonist from the UK. Uh Luisito Quintero played um percussion. Now, guys like Charles and Marcus, you know, they're young guys, right? They're they're kind of on the come up. Chick was um a little more stern with them than he was with with Roy Haynes, Wallace Roney, and Kenny Garrett. And so, I mean, it was just interesting to see, you know, like, ah, okay. So Chick picks his spots. Yeah. Depending on what band it is and you know he kind of reads the terrain and reacts accordingly you know he's like a running back you know okay they're giving me that defense okay i know how to handle that one yeah whereas some band leaders are just going to do what they do no matter who it is you get a legend on the gig like roy haynes roy i need you to play this exactly like that you get a younger guy on the gig i need you to play exactly like this you know whatever you know with to, to each his own but that was a long way of saying, I'm not sure that these legends focus on one particular thing that others don't, but there's a certain wisdom that comes with just years that um, where you just feel comfortable knowing who you are and, and what
0: spots to pick. Do you feel like you have found that for yourself now? I, I
1: doubt it. I I probably think I have, but Ask me that question in 10 years, and I'm going to say, man, when I was 48, I didn't know nothing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're always growing. We're always growing, and that's cool that you- Yeah, we're we're perpetual students, man. We we should be. Yeah, that's great. I have a question about creativity for you because you've been a creative musician for a lot of years. You've been a band leader. You've made your own albums. You've been a part of a bunch of other people's albums, both as a sideman and as a band member touring, making albums, a lot of people wonder, how do you just turn on creativity? How do you, like when it comes time night after night to just turn it on and go, how do you express yourself night after night? How do you, do you put creativity on a, a light switch? Is it something you just live out? What is that process for you? Well,
1: you don't, you don't create in a bubble. I mean, I suppose you could, but I mean particularly like with the where i am as a musician you get creativity from the other musicians you know because you're listening to each other you're being influenced by each other you're reacting to each other so um in terms of being creative if you got other musicians on stage with you i don't see any reason why you couldn't instantly be inspired to do something you know and that, that doesn't mean that the choices you make will always be the best creative choices, but the actual act of creating, I don't find it that difficult to do. I mean, I, I, I surely have problems. I, I've always had real bad mental blocks when I'm trying to compose, which is basically improvisation slowed way, way, way down, and you know written down. But when I'm actually playing my instrument, With other musicians, finding that creative spark hasn't been too much of a a problem. But I have to consciously work to get rid of these road, these mental blocks when I'm trying to write songs. Because usually when I I start writing a song, I get into this thing of like, I'll never be as good as Chick Corea. Uh, (laughs) I'll never write a song like Wayne Shorter. Oh my God, I'll, I'll never write a song like Pat Metheny. You know, so like I start thinking of like all of these people I've had a chance to play with. And I get disappointed that whatever that part of their creative genius is in, in writing, I don't think I got. And so I start like, you know, banging my head, you know, metaphorically banging my head up against the wall. Like, you know, I can't write, yeah. you know, And so uh, I, I have to really learn how to get out of that. Sure. Because I, I do think I've written some songs that are not too bad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So you find yourself more in the side of admiring others' creativity more than your own? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And obviously there are some of the, the naturally narcissistic people who think that their creativity is the only good creativity. <laughs> then, then there's that. <laughs> I've played with a couple of those cats, and uh, yeah. It's, yeah, I bet. <laughs> okay, I have a question about a certain year in jazz and whether – you or we think this might ever happen again. I know you're a, you're a great historian. You know so much about the genre. You're an advocate for the genre. So I want to just bring this up. The year 1959, we have so many, and I've talked about this on my podcast before, because this year has always just enamored me as far as musical creativity, especially in this specific genre, whatever we want to call it, of jazz. You have Ornette Coleman putting out The Shape of Jazz to Come. Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. John Coltrane, Giant Steps. Dave Brubeck, Time Out. Charles Mingus, uh-um. Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, moaning. And then you have Duke Ellington doing jazz as a film score with Anatomy of a Murder. All of these things that are just such a foundation to me of what jazz is, that's like all of those albums seem like they've created new branches in the tree of jazz so much creativity was there just something happening in that era are we ever gonna see that again and what would that even look like it's just for me that's fun to think about and what would that even be
1: i'm sure that was unexpected i I don't think there was like some sort of secret society that got together in 1959 (laughs) i was like yeah yeah we blew that shit up Yeah, yeah 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 you know i think all of that stuff just uh was uh a wonderful organic sort of—I'm uh, not—I'm not sure I would call it a peak, but you know, those were some great albums that that came out in 1959. Like the 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 sard the, the sardonic, uh, cynic that's in me says, well, all that means is that Columbia Jazz Department had an uh, amazing PR team that year, <laughs> right?
0: Because <laughs> <So,
1: laughs> most of those records were all on Columbia. Yeah, but. I think there've been some other great years that don't get that sort of pub. I mean, I, I think of like 1964 of Coltrane recording, A Love Supreme, Miles Davis recording Four and More, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers releasing uh, uh, Free For All. So, I, you know, uh, Wayne Shorter, Speak No Evil. And so like there, there was some, some, that was a good year. And then 69, of course, you know, Bitches Brew, uh, Cannonball Adderley uh, released, uh, it, it was actually a, just a live album, it's called Cannonball Adderley in person. I think it was recorded in 68, but came out in 69. I mean, all kinds of years have uh, 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 a flood of, of, of good recordings. I think that may have happened in, uh, I mean, I think of when I first came on the scene in like 1990, uh, Kenny Kirkland's solo album coming out in 1991, or was it, yeah, 91. And then uh, Branford Marcellus releasing, uh, I Heard You Twice the first time. Wouldn't Marcellus releasing the soundtrack to, uh, uh, I think it was Tune In Tomorrow. I, I could be wrong in that year, 91. But uh, so again, all, all that is to say that if that does happen again, I have no idea what that will look like. You know, first of all, the whole idea of releasing a record. That, that many that that many new releases coming out at one time and and being able to get that sort of spotlight I don't know man I I don't I don't know what that looks like in 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 the 21st century
0: We're talking about it now as like man are the 96 bulls ever going to happen again Right <laughs> you know? right It's, like, it's right. kind of fun you know I I know a lot of sports uh, sports fans like to talk about specific teams or like the bears in a specific year or the 85 years. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. The 2000 Ravens. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it, it is fun to think about. And it's, um, you know, like year was that, was it the 17
1: warriors? It was uh 73 and nine or 74 and nine.
0: What year was that? I don't know, but that sounds yeah. about right. 17 or 18. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to think about in music. You know, I, I think, yeah, it's a totally different thing, but in a similar way where there's kind of superstars of athleticism, there is superstars of creativity and musical expression that trend... Like, you've talked about certain artists transcending the genre of jazz. I think there are people that, that just have this thing that he, they emote. Um, for example, our friend John Batiste. Like, he emotes creativity in a in a way that is just... So incredible to see firsthand, and even just as yes, a, as, a, as somebody who's a listener. And then when you're in the room, it's just it's it's always there. Yes,
1: I- indeed, absolutely. The guy, the guy is always on. It's it's amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's fun to fun to see in different musicians.
1: I remember the first time I met John. I, I'm pretty sure this was the first time I met him. He was still a student at Juilliard, and uh, I'd gone there to give a master class. And we started this jam session at the end of the, of the masterclass. And uh, I had heard his name already. In fact, I wonder if he had already been gigging with Roy Hargrove at that time or was about to start gigging with him. We were playing Straight No Chaser. And, and I was playing the drums. I always like to play drums at jam oh. sessions. <laughs> nice. So John gets up and he starts playing his piano solo. And man, it was so swinging. And I just remember thinking, yo, that's him. That's that dude I've been hearing about, yeah. you know. And then, you know, see to see where his career has gone, it it, it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> okay, bass questions. Because I know there's some people listening that are going to want to get into in some bass stuff. I've seen you play with Pat Metheny live and in hundreds of YouTube videos. And even like we talked about in the Philadelphia Experiment, occasionally playing electric, occasionally playing upright. You are definitely one of the few people who can, who is very accomplished in both of those. Sometimes it's like, well, I play electric and I can, I can get by and upright, you know. <laughs> and, or or I play upright and I kind of get the electric thing. But for you, when do you choose which to play and why?
1: Well, it depends on the music, you know. uh depends on the band, depends on the music. I, I don't really have a sort of... Theory or or concept on what instrument goes, you know, like, I I mean, I let the song determine what it is or or the band, you know, obviously, I I, certainly in on gigs, I play much more acoustic than I do electric. Last summer, oh, I'm sorry, summer of 2019, I almost feels like like 2020 was a non-year, I know, you know. Like every time I say last year, I have to catch myself like, no, you mean two years yeah, ago.
0: it's crazy. <laughs> you know?
1: But yeah, in the summer of 2019, for the first time, I actually took my own electric band on tour. Uh, it was a group called A Christian McBride Situation. And uh, I have both Jahi Sundance and DJ Logic doing the turntables, the great Patrice Russian playing keys. Uh, Ron Blake on saxophone and Allison Williams on vocals, and the upright bass, the acoustic bass, that's Mother Earth. So I'm always going to play the the acoustic yeah. bass. But you know, when you don't see a drummer, but you see two turntablists and you see stacks of keyboards and a vocalist, you know, it's probably going to be more on the funky side. So I was definitely playing more electric on in that band in, in any other band I've ever had, and I had so much fun on that tour, but I remember seeing a, a review. I had to do it just just to torture myself. <laughs> I, I copied and pasted and put it in Google Translate. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it says something like, "Uh, it was a good band, but it was really difficult to get used to seeing Christian McBride playing so much electric. I thought this was going to be a swinging band. And, you know, this this band was more more like a Marcus Miller Marcus Miller type band. And uh, it, it wasn't a bad review, but I do get the sense that that sentiment happens probably more often than not when people hear me playing electric. Particularly old jazz heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not you, not you. Yeah. You're cool, <laughs> right? But I think most people older than me, I was able to serve, you know, they have me tucked away in a really nice mental drawer. Yeah right? And they need me in that drawer because I don't know who else they have in that drawer. Whoever they have in that drawer might be dead, right? So they need me in that drawer. And if I get out of that drawer and go into another one, they're like, no, 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 no. That drawer is full already. I need you back over here, you know? So um, that group was uh, one group where I really got a chance to really stretch out and play a lot of electric bass. Obviously, I play electric bass quite a bit with the Philly experiment, but when I'm playing with, with, so that band I was telling you about, the Joe Sutler Swing Machine, all the guys from MFSB were in that band. So Uri Kane was the pianist in Joe Sutler Swing Machine. So I know Uri from, you know, back when I was in high school as well. And Amir playing the drums. I could play anything in that band and, and, and we'll feel okay. Because we all go back. Yeah. You know, we're all, you know, all friends from from back in the day. But yeah, in terms of what I choose to play, I mean, it all depends on the music and and depends on the band.
0: Yeah, when you played with James Brown, did you play an upright?
1: Yes, I I did both.
0: Okay. So
1: when when I the first time I ever played with James Brown was when I sat in with him at his birthday bash in Augusta. It w- it would have been his like sixty. So it would have been his sixty fourth birthday bash in Augusta, Georgia he invited all of the, the musicians that performed to come sit in with him. So I played a couple of tunes with him and obviously that was electric, but just a few months before he died, he sang with uh, uh, my big band at the Hollywood Bowl. Wow. And so it was a combination. So he he did this, he did this. Uh, I don't know if you call it obscure, but it's a, it's a pretty unsung recording. He did with Louis Belson's big band with Oliver Nelson doing all the arrangements. The album is called Soul on Top. And that was always one of my favorite off the radar James Brown records. Because like it was made in 1969, right at the peak of like, you know, Mother Popcorn, Ain't It Funky Now, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And then he makes this off-the-beaten path jazz album. Yeah. Like, you know, with Louis Belson, Alvin Nelson, and Ray Brown, all these people. And so uh when I got to know James Brown, that's kind of what brought us together. He was he was impressed that I knew that album so well. Mm. And so um at the Hollywood Bowl we we did Soul on Top live. And wow. so uh yeah, I played mostly acoustic bass. I played electric on I don't know w- one or two songs. I think just one song. But yeah, it was a, it was a big thrill for for Mr. Brown. He he told me himself, you know, he's like, "Man, I'm, I I originally wanted to be a jazz singer." You know, and so uh, you're you taking me back to my roots. That was his phrase. Well, the, the actual phrase, which was hilarious, he was like, um, you, you know, jazz is where I wanted to go before I got sidetracked by the
0: funk. <laughs> That's that amazing. Quote, yeah. That's amazing. Well, there's a lot of young musicians that listen to this podcast and a lot of people that are trying to find their way, trying to figure out how to either find who they are as a musician, also how to get other people to know who they are as a musician
1: well I think when you when you're trying to find yourself it's all trial and error right that that's how you learn you learn from mistakes mm-hmm. when you screw up that's when you go back to the drawing board and say man i messed that up let me figure out how to do that better and you can't screw up if you don't take chances you know so when you take when i when i say take chances i mean i don't mean musical chances but i mean like try everything out you know, there's a whole world out there of different types of music. Find stuff that's gonna challenge you. You know, don't listen to what people say, but go find out for yourself. You know, and that and that's what, uh, that's what I've always tried to do as a musician. You know, I always say I never bought, I never bought a lifetime pass to any particular scene. I constantly buy day passes, you know, that way I get to check out everything going on. I get to go play with somebody like, like John Zorn uh, or Laurie Anderson. And then I go get to play with somebody like Chick Corea or Pat Matheny or Renee Fleming and, and, and Kathleen battle or Edgar Meyer and, and, and Ricky Skaggs and Bruce Hornsby, you know, it's like, these are day passes to all of these different places, you know, and then by visiting all of these different places and playing with all these different people, I find out who I am, Yeah, you know? Say, oh, I find myself kind of gravitating more toward this naturally. Oh, I find myself kind of doing this a little more, but I can't figure that out unless I try it all out. You know what I mean? And I think it's just good as a person, I mean, much less a musician, it's good as a person to just find things that you aren't comfortable in. You know, I like those challenges. Yeah. Let me go play bass with Ricky Skaggs. I have no idea what that feels like. I have no idea what it's going to, I, I'm probably going to screw it up, but it'll be much better for me to go and screw it up than for me to not do it and be like, well, you know, I didn't really want to do that anyway. You know, uh, that's, that's such an easy way out. So uh, don't be, don't be afraid to screw up. Be, be curious, go play with everybody, look for a challenge. And, uh, don't don't be afraid to screw up. You know what I mean? You're going to you're going to do that whether you try to avoid it or not
0: as part of life. Yeah. That's amazing. That's wonderful. Well, to finish up, tell us what's next. What what else do you have going on? What's the future of Christian McBride in the next couple of years and the Newport Jazz Festival too, just cuz I'm I for me that festival has always been such a bucket list thing. It's something that kind of, you know, it informs me on and maybe this is a testament to the programming and the artistic direction since its inception but whoever's playing that festival those are people I start to pay attention to and that I look to as a barometer for that. So what's what's next for the Newport well, Jazz you. Festival and what's next for you?
1: Well, for starters, we hope that this uh this pandemic ends so we can kind of slowly get back on track to uh building everything back up yeah. to the to the way it was. We're planning something for the festival this year. I I don't know what? I don't know how, but we are planning something, you know, so st- stay tuned for some kind of news. In terms of uh, what's going on with me personally or or, or professionally, rather, it's now uh, February 15th. I have nothing on the books, at least until the end of May. And even now that seems a little iffy. So um, I don't know what's going to happen. I was hoping that this Joshua Redman reunion tour was gonna happen. It was supposed to happen last year, obviously. Nothing happened. And uh we were uh slated to pick it up again this year. That may still or may not happen. I'm not sure, but uh that's the most immediate thing that comes to mind is the uh the Joshua Redman, Brad Meldow, Brian Blade reunion tour.
0: Yeah. I hope that can happen. I would love to see that. That's a great band. Me me too. Awesome. Well, Christian, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a treat to have you, and uh, I hope that someday we'll be able to to play some music together. Well, you're coming to Newport. Best, you can best believe that. Yeah. We, we, we're coming back. We're coming back to All you. All right. All right. Well, let's play together <laughs> then, and and even more.
1: You got me. You. Got, I'm recorded, so you you know you got proof. You coming. you We're gonna ask you again. <laughs>
0: All right. I'll be there. I'm All right. there. All right, man. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. all right i dig that christian mcbride that guy is amazing and i really hope to play music with him someday and someday very soon Woo! wisdom knowledge and just kind those things don't all come together all the time that's really fun to see in him really wonderful person Hey, thanks for hanging out with us this week. This is really fun. This is really fun for me. And at this point, if you listen long enough into the interview, you're okay with me saying, hey, I got some new music out. I got a new single out. Check it out. It's on Spotify and all that stuff. It's a collaborative single, which is really fun also. A cat in the smooth jazz world, Dave Koz. Now, I know sometimes smooth jazz gets a bad rap. Rightfully so. I actually am not a huge fan of smooth jazz albums, but a lot of smooth jazz artists are really awesome live, and that's what I wanted to capture with this album that's coming out. So it's an album with Dave Cause and Corey Wong. I love Dave Koz's live gigs transparently. I don't love all of his albums. Sometimes they're a little too smooth for me. Uh, so with this album, as the producer of it, I said, Let's capture that live cause, energy, and make a really fun and exciting album. That's what we did. The first single is called Today. Check it out. We'll see you next week. Peace!